Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt Hartley, how are you? I'm so good, Bill. I think the people coming from the Mormon community might be interested on where you're podcasting from today. This might look a little familiar. This I'm sitting in Mormon Stories uh, studio, and uh, I just went out to went up to Salt Lake City to hang out with uh, John and Margie Delin, and we did over today and yesterday a nine hour interview that I think is going to be well received by the folks who are interested in Mormon discussion or. My work as a content creator, we had conversations on everything, stuff like deconstructing Mormonism, how I got into the church, uh, and maybe from facets that we'd never quite explored before. And then my favorite was this uh, today's conversation, which was really more of like this uh, awakened uh, reconstruction. What do, What is one who's thought this all through, what, what does one have to offer on this side of things to help people reconnect with something? And um, Margie and John were just super great at facilitating that conversation, asking good questions, making good comments. And um, Amanda chimed in from time to time and she really accentuated the conversation and uh, it was a total blast. And then tonight at six, there's a VIP dinner and a seven o'clock program where I still have to come up with something to say, and then we're going to do a Q&A, which I always, I love Q&As. Mm-hmm. I was telling the Delins yesterday that there's something about letting people ask anything and welcoming on some level a hard com- a hard question because the entity you came from didn't want to be honest and transparent. And so you'll be damned if you're not going to model it, right? Mm-hmm. And so to have the folks have room to ask whatever they want and then to tackle it, uh, I'm super excited about the conversation. And so this is going to be a lot of fun. It's been a great couple of days uh, here hanging out with the Delens. Awesome. I can't wait to listen. I don't always listen to the nine hour yeah. uh, episodes that John does, but um, I definitely will. I definitely will for you, Bill, because I, I still am learning things about you, even yeah. at, even after we podcasted for how long have we been podcasting for? Almost I, two years. Yeah, I would say I would say two years. Yeah. So I'm still learning things, but it looks like we got some listeners who are getting ready to drive down to meet you. So I can't wait to to see everybody. What's going on in your life? How's life treating you? Yeah, just um, hmm, nothing new for me. Just kid stuff and enjoying gathering the info for these um, for these podcasts. Once in a while, I'll take something that you know I've been working with in preparation for the podcast, and I'll put it on TikTok. But you know, TikTok you can only do three minutes. And there's so many times where I just can't get the idea across or we can't really wrestle with it because it's just too short of a format. And so I'll get a lot of pushback. And so this is actually one episode where I was getting quite a bit of pushback from social media when I was kind of preparing and I'd maybe post an idea or something. Um, And so I'm excited to have this space where you and I can actually flesh out some of these things. 
um, which I just don't get to do with the average person, even the average atheist. And so I enjoy, you know, I enjoy preparing for these conversations. And we probably should at least note so that folks can take it all in and enjoy it, that this will be uh, Britt Hartley's last episode for the summer. Uh, her kids out of school and you're going to step away to take care of making sure that everything at home is good. And, and then hopefully we'll see you back when the summer's over. Yeah. Yep. And so we'll have some guest hosts and we can announce that as that comes, but yeah, I'm going to spend the summer with my family. Last summer obviously was super hard because, you know, Flo had fallen out of the window. And so we spent last summer in the hospital. And so I'm just looking forward to this will be the first summer where my kids are kind of old enough to be able to kind of enjoy a summer. So I'm going to shift to that. And I'm just grateful um, that you'll work with me on that bill and let yeah. me be able to do that. And then hopefully in the fall, my kids will go back to school full time and we'll be back to have these really interesting conversations that I just really don't get to have all the time. Yeah, super excited. Um, otherwise, like I'm, I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation that you've created for today, and I'll turn the time over to you to, to kind of initiate us into this and walk us into fleshing out some really cool ideas. Yeah. So this um, podcast comes from two books. One I read, and one I did the cheat version where I just listened to podcast about the book, but I didn't actually read. So if you've read it, you can definitely join in the conversation. But there's two books, and one is The Seven Forms of Atheism by John Gray, who's a very controversial atheist um, English philosopher. And the other was Strange Rights, which was the kind of beach read that I read that talked about seven new religions um, in America. And so both of these books, I'm kind of combining them together, plus they both had kind of the number seven. And so, you know, humans, we just can't resist a pattern. And so I thought I would combine them because they both address this idea of, okay, God is dead. People are leaving religion. What do people do next? And just kind of examining this. And so I'm really excited to talk to you about the seven forms of atheism that John Gray lays out and see what you think of these. And then the first five that I'll do he considers, and he's, he's again, very controversial. He rubs a lot of atheists the wrong way. Um, but his idea is that kind of the first five that we'll go over are not pure forms of atheism, that they're still operating kind of in the hole, in the shadow of God and monotheism. And that Western civilization can't escape this gravitational pull of Abrahamic religions. And then the last two he considers to be pure forms of atheism. And so we'll just see. I just I'm curious to see what you think about how he kind of sectioned off atheism. And again, one of the things on on TikTok that I got a pushback on was people saying atheism is just the belief. It's just a belief of negation. No God. That's all it is. And while that's true, like maybe in like a definitional sense, that's true. Atheism does act like a culture and you can study where do atheists go? What do they do? Why are they atheists? What do they do with their atheism? You can still kind of study that even if definitionally it's just a statement of negation. So anyway, any thoughts before we dive in? Just, it's interesting to me that uh, there are the folks who believe there's no God there's the folks who believe there's God, but even of the folks who believe there's God, they can't agree. Hence, hence they would essentially within the community of other believers who can't agree on what it is exactly God is, mm -hmm. 
what exactly God thinks, what exactly God has said, uh, makes it uh, sort of this strange thing where they're really pointing at the atheists and saying, you're wrong, yet they all sort of disagree with each other. And I just, I don't know. I, again, I'm not trying to poke at them. It's, it's that w- really what, if we just grasp at it and be really vulnerable, it's that we couldn't possibly know. And we all have a hunch about what it is, but all of us disagree on our hunches. And, and hence, even if you are absolutely certain, and the only way you could be is if you spoke to an angel or God yourself, and even then there are other explanations such as mental illness or a, a hallucination of some sort, that we all ought to go in these conversations going, even if I have a hunch or even a degree of certainty, it's mystery. And I think the atheist is sort of saying that anyway, like it's, it's mystery. Like there's the science says that there isn't something there. That's the most rational explanation. All the other explanations have some problematic issues to them. And so I hope even if a believer or two tunes in today that you'll just sit with the conversation as it's happening and give us a chance to kind of express that atheism also isn't just one movement. It's a lot of different ideas and things going on all at the same time. Yeah, and I think this goes back, we've had, on all of this, I'm actually kind of proud of us, because as I go through the, his list of of, atheists, of atheism and how he sees sometimes how it operates like a religion, and then the new religious movements that we'll talk about later, um, we've talked about a lot of these things. And so I, I, I do feel like, um, you know, I'm proud of us. Like, we picked up on some of these aspects that he was talking about. We may not have grouped them this way or defined it in this way. Um, But I think the hard, bitter pill to swallow for atheists is that even if you leave God and leave religion, if you were raised in kind of a patriarchy and raised in Western civilization, there'll be certain ideas and patterns that come to us from monotheism that we don't recognize that we're still doing even when we leave religion. You and I have talked about that a lot, but that's where I get a lot of atheists saying, that's not true. I've left God. I don't believe in God, but there's so much in the subconscious going on when, um, when you're raised in the West, that's still kind of God and Christianity driven. Anyway, so seven kinds of atheism. So number one, he, uh, really pushes back on new atheism. And this is where the atheist community got really upset because he came after Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who are like the golden children of atheism, right? And so essentially new atheism um, and Richard Dawkins characterizes religions as how to explain the world. And so obviously to someone like Richard Dawkins, taking something like Genesis as a way to explain the scientific world, he just sees as absurd. But what John says is that religion has always been more about how to live in the world. So a quote from him, it's their idea of religion as a failed scientific theory of everything, a a primitive science that that people like Richard Dawkins and new atheists think of religion as a primitive science. When it comes to the Genesis myth, even early Christian scholars said you mustn't read this as literal rendition of fact. It's a mistake to confuse religious fundamentalists with the vast, rich tradition of religious life. And religion is not an explanatory theory of the world. It's a way of making sense of living in the world. And so his critique of new atheism is that it'll say... Um, that religion is not a way of making sense of living in the world when that was never 
religion's game because science can tell us that rituals are good and good for your mental and physical health, but science can't actually create a communal ritual. You actually have to have religion to do that. And so he sees that they are not um, taking religion as seriously as they should. Thoughts there? So we were having a conversation over the last couple of days in terms of whether taking away religion might end up being to the detriment of society, sort of the conversations that you and I are often having, if not in the show, but certainly before shows start and and as we've conversated with each other. Uh, I, I think of things like the Jedi faith, uh, right? Somebody took Star Wars and they took the morality and the sense of like the force, which is kind of the spirit kind of out there and took something that we all agree is not real and then created a religion around it. And I found that interesting because I, I think when you believe in things literally, uh, there is really unhealthy space for abuse. And I'm, I'm curious how well we could build a religion on something that we all collectively agree up front is false. And so John was talking about reform Judaism, which does that and it does quite well. And I was thinking like, if we created a religion based on the, the Norse gods, uh, Zeus and Hercules and, and then created rituals and created new stories and placed it in the reason I say all that is because you're pointing to a truth, which is that you can't just discount religion entirely. It does give people some grounding for morality. And some of that morality is good, some of it's bad, so be it. But I think the problem comes in when we impose that whole thing as a literal myth, right? That myth's not just myth like made up, it's a literal story that you need to take as absolute, and hence you can't really question God's voice. And as this new age atheism, as you point out, is sort of reminding us that there's value in the narrative, right? Or or, or are you saying that the New Age atheism is the Sam, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins atheism? He's saying, yeah, New Atheism is the Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, which look as religion as our first attempt at science. And if you look at religion as our first attempt at science, it's going to suck, right? Because yeah. it's just not there. But if you look at it from a different lens, then maybe it has something more to offer that they're not, that they're not valuing. Yeah. that religion has been a way of making sense of living in the world, not a theory of what's actually going on scientifically. In yeah. the world. So, and so the most, like the most controversial thing I heard him say that everybody got mad at was that um, to, to really be a true atheist, and we'll get to this later on, you forget that this, these ideas of utopia and the world ever getting better and all these replacements for God and religion. And you just sit with kind of the silence of the mystery of the universe. And if you want to play in a myth, then you just pick the myth that you want to play in. And if you're, we're going to be picking myths, you might as well go back to Christianity and some of these myths that have stood the test of time because they're more likely to be psychologically powerful enough to play in, whereas these new religions like secular humanism just don't have that kind of lasting power. And so he's essentially saying 
I'm an atheist, but if you want to play in the myths, maybe just go back to traditional religion because they do myths really well. And then everybody was confused because the believers are like, I don't even understand what you're saying. And the atheists are like, well, I can't go back there. And so he's, he's a very controversial figure, but it's an interesting yeah. idea. So my, my kind of final thoughts on that is I think I agree with New Age atheism that religion is an attempt to explain what's not yet been explained or is not yet explainable. Hence, it really it did fill the void that science will come in always after eventually on, on most things and add insight that explains things in a, you know, a naturalistic way. Whereas the unexplained, for instance, the sun comes up every day and it must be a God. And, uh, you know, the sun revolves around the earth and st- because that's what we see. So, so religion attempts to explain what we see, but doesn't really grasp the processes. And I also agree with the critics of new age atheism that we ought to not throw out the baby with the bathwater, that there is something that religion is also explaining that's important for humans to be able to kind of ground some, some human behavior in and some ritual and all the things that that does. We've talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back and I'll say, I also agree with new age atheism that the fear is that if you take the story, literally the fear is if you put too much emphasis on it, like, Hey, we're all going to just believe in this thing that isn't true. Mm-hmm. Eventually somebody breaks off and decides it's true again. And yeah. And the literalness and that will is always then, happen. Yeah. But we're right back to harm. In other words, you could have the Jedi faith, which is complete BS. But if we went back to a hunter-gatherer society because some mass event happened, and in the Jedi faith book, whatever that is, I don't know how they do it. Probably on the internet, which it's dead too. Then, but I think they have. Book, tw- I think they have like twenty-four like statements of statements that they live yeah. by. So they do have like a code. But you're right. Like if given enough time, even though we know this comes from a movie, there would be someone saying, well, because the movie was playing on Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung, which was playing on these, you know, deep ancient ideas. And if, you know, you could start looking at science from a certain lens so that the force is actually real and we'd be back into a religion. Yeah. The history of humankind, again, we're, we're spending a lot of time on this first one. That's my fault. But, um, the history of humankind is that we start off with shamans encouraging personal experiences and we end with gurus telling people that the experience is valid and authoritative for everyone. Mm. And then the guru always asks for your wife. <laughs> That's the and end your, of and the your story. money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So the next one is secular humanism. Which um, I always, until I really read his work, I just thought it was a really good thing. And he like rips secular humanism apart, which I at least found interesting because I'd never heard a voice who really kind of stood against secular humanism. He really comes out of. And so the reason that he does that is that the whole idea of progress and that human society should progress comes from monotheistic religion, particularly Christianity. that because it says that Christ will return one day, but only after we kind of improve the world and get to a certain point. So the secular humanists have replaced the idea of God with the idea of humanity, that we have to have a common set of goals that are gradually realized over time and that things could and should get better. And that humanity is a story with redemptive meaning and that the arc of, you know, the universe has an arc of justice that, or has an arc that bends towards justice 
And so his critique is that the secular humanists haven't shed a way of thinking that comes from monotheism. Before Christianity, before Abrahamic religions, it was never really assumed that progress would occur. History has no, if you're a true atheist, if you're a true nihilist, if you're a true atheist, he says that history has no redemptive significance. There will be, there was conflict in the past and there'll always be conflict. Like there's nothing redemptive mm. about the course of human history. And so he talks about other societies like ancient Greece or Eastern societies where time is like, time is circular. So you'll have like, you'll have times of growth and development and then you'll go back to some kind of anarchy or barbarism and you just keep going round and round and round. And there was no sense that that would change. It just keeps going around and around. And so the idea of secular humanism that we're gonna gather in these societies and instead of 10 commandments, we have 10 commitments and we're gonna have secular humanists who do marriages, but it's the same way that we did marriages before. We're just doing it with a different kind of priest. And so he's essentially saying, this is still Christianity the ideas here are still monotheistic, even though they reject kind of a God. And so his his um, annoyance with that is that secular humanists will rock, walk around and say that they're totally atheistic, not realizing that they are operating under the same thought patterns that come to us from religion. Yeah, we we only have the ability to work with what we know, and we can't possibly know what we don't know. And our exposure to other cultures and systems often uh, cracks these patterns of behavior and and this certain thinking that kind of stays with us over time that that only by seeing the world do it a different way can we kind of readjust and, and change those patterns that are there. It, it certainly seems, you know, based on what you're saying, that um, their, the secular humanism is patterned after a particular myth system and hence, you're really not avoiding religion completely. Yeah, and, you're still a brand of monotheism. Yeah. You just don't. They just. I think what annoys him is that they don't recognize it. They're like, well, I don't believe in God. And it's like, well, all of your thought patterns are built around ideas that were centered around them being, there being a God and having Christ return someday and all of these ideas that we get from not monotheism. So that's interesting. I don't know if it means that secular humanism is bad or that it shouldn't be around. It seems to be. Yeah. It'll be difficult, I think, for any new thing to create pseudo-theology or um, belief system or uh, rituals without borrowing from something. Like you'd Mm -hmm. have to create it out of thin air and... Even yeah. then, it would have some resemblance to something Yeah, that would be difficult, I think, to do. And I think that's a really deep thought that I never get to talk about with atheists, that if you start making rituals from nothing, we'll inevitably kind of go towards these rituals that we've already done before. As this, and, and either it's like this kind of ancient memory or our subconscious or just human nature, but like water and fire is like, you know, I know a lot of people who are atheists who will still go into a body of water to do some kind of symbolic cleansing. We see that in almost every culture, right? And so like we when we start saying, "Oh, we'll just we'll just create rituals," then we just end up kind of doing what we've always done. And so maybe there's in some ways you can't escape human nature. Anyway. Yeah, it, 
there's already, again, you're reinventing the wheel. Everyone before you through millions of years have invented rituals that include certain components that have been used over and over again. And they, and it's been that way, like you say, for a reason. So if we try to create an entirely new system based on not using anything that's ever been used, you're going to have a real hard time making connections to things in the earth or on the earth Yeah. that are, that that connection already hasn't been made. You'd almost have to like, yeah. I'm going to pick a thing that is absolutely unrelated to the connection I want to make and call because it's already been done. Yeah. And then the thing that would be opposite of the thing would mean that it's probably not captivating enough to create a new community anyway, and right? It still because was, it's not it, digging into your subconscious at all. And it was still impacted because you tried, because you tried to avoid a thing intentionally, you actually are still connected to the thing. Yes. Yeah. See, that's, this is why I love these conversations with you though. You get, these are such deep thoughts that I, I feel like at face value, atheism can't um, handle. Anyway. Borrow away, secular humanism. Borrow away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. So the next one is um, atheists who have a faith in science. And I would also put transhumanism in this, which we did a whole episode last week on mm -hmm. transhumanism. And we got to see a person who really does and would openly say, I have faith in science and that it is part of my religion and that everything that I wanted from religion, I now have faith that science will do. And he embodied that like that was definitely his worldview. And so uh, John Gray's kind of pushback against this is that people can't explain why science should have liberal values. Although the assumption is that science, if science gets better, then we would be able to be kind better or help the poor better. But his argument is that science is a set of methods and that it can't dictate what we should value. And science could ease just as easily justify racism or imperialism or genocide, which science has been used in the past to, for those purposes. Um, and so there's no reason to think that a faith in science would make the world any better because um, science is just a method and it can't tell you what to value. And so he's attacked Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, <clears throat> Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, the four horsemen as putting too much faith in science when really science is doing both good and bad things like anything else. It's just going to magnify human nature, which takes from the poor and, you know, is immoral and terrible and all the things. And it's just going to keep doing what humans are doing. And there's no reason to believe that science is going to make the world a better place. It's just going to keep the world exactly the way that it is. Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot lately. I've had these conversations with uh, believing Latter-day Saint Jacob Hansen, and they've been interesting kind of on their own. But one of the things we've been tackling along the way is this idea of morality and morality created by uh, non-believers in God are uh, the religionists see them as creating something that you're you're deeming either as an individual or as a collective group, what is good and bad, healthy and unhealthy. And how could you ever even possibly know what's good or bad or healthy or unhealthy when it's all subjective, right? And hence, atheists can have a good morality, but at any given moment, how does one know that one's atheist morality is good or bad? And now you're in the complexities because you really do need this outside voice to, to deem that the rules are not arbitrary, right? But that's not exactly true. Like, 
if we go back in time to the beginning of whatever it was, those initial life forms on earth, Spencer Wright and I had a conversation about this where the original life forms, they either chose to head towards nourishment and safety, the first amoeba, for instance, or they would go towards, they would either confront starvation or danger, right? And so whatever ones went the one way died. Hence, they valued, the ones that lived, valued food and mm -hmm. safety. Mm -hmm. So now we fast forward through time and we tell ourselves that humans are the only ones who have morality, but that's just not true. You can go on YouTube, type in animal morality, and there are videos of uh, chimpanzees in uh, research experiments showing that they value fairness, reciprocity. Yeah. We did an episode on this yep. too. Yep. And so once you grasp that it's not a human thing, that animals without God have survived to this point because they've developed values that support tribal collaboration and perpetuation. And if we can start to kind of sort out, if we, if we are going to say like it, I get it, or I get it, believers, theists, that if I say I want human beings to flourish and I want to reduce suffering and harm in the world, yes, you get to say that's sort of subjective. I don't disagree with you on, on a certain level. Mm -hmm. That said, I still think you can't argue with it as being the collective agreement, because if you say like you have to have God, well, that doesn't make sense either. God yeah. doesn't seem to agree everywhere. And then even when you agree with a particular God, you self-acknowledge that he hasn't done a very good job of giving his 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 human yeah. mediators of his word um a, a good solid perspective because every religion is within Christianity for sure is denouncing some beliefs that were imposed as God's mind and will discarding some things is out of date and then adding things that weren't in there. And then, uh, then finally believing some of the things and taking them. So you self admit that your own process isn't coherent and it doesn't work. Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's two things there that stand out to me. One is that, you always have to kind of pull yourself up from your bootstraps. You always have to start with something. And so you're starting with, Hey, this is a conversation and we're doing relative morality as part of a conversation, but everybody, you, you kind of have to jump somewhere because there's nothing really inherent for you to, to build off of. And then the second thing that I pulled out of what you said is that yes, people want absolute morality, but with absolute morality, you get statements like, well, let's kill all the Amalekites because God said so. And so if there's absolute morality and someone thinks God said so, then you can do things that you could never do if you were truly in conversation with, like if these two tribes were actually in conversation with each other, you're more likely for that to um, turn out in a way that's less violent than if um, both are just talking to their gods, right? And their absolute morality. We cut the skin off children's dicks because God said so. Right. Like every Christian who wants to hold morality as coming from an objective God is subjectively deciding what rules from that objective God to ignore, right. dismiss, and follow. Which you're using like your inner sense of, you know, your, your inner conscience anyway when you have to do that. So, yeah. so I essentially would say that all morality is sort of subjective, and I think we can dis we can display that it's not just human morality. It's life on Earth moves toward a certain direction, and when we protect the well-being and safety and security 
of uh, the collective humanity. It's our best chance at humanity perpetuating. Um, and hence, if we can find ways to value kindness, compassion, reciprocity, fairness, uh, and reducing suffering, whether you think it's objective or subjective, it feels like the best way to create and, yeah. and maximize the experience for all humans on yeah. earth. And I think Gray would agree with that. His only pushback would be if you think that science is going to be the savior to get you there, it's not going to be science that's going to get you there because science just does whatever, does whatever we want it to do, essentially. And and it's just going to be a thing. reflection of our values. The thing I would say is let's not have science determine morality. I don't think we need it. We've already mm -hmm. done that before science even had the stage. Again, chimpanzees are doing it to some degree without even knowing that science is a thing. Mm -hmm. So let's let's determine the right way to treat each other because I think we can collectively agree and we can shush the unhealthy voices and we can we can collectively agree without any science that we should be kind to each other and start coming up with basic premises. And then let's let science determine if those work or not towards mm -hmm. the values we've already created without it. Yeah, it's almost like we're getting to this point as the talking apes that we are, where we have to examine our instincts and then use our reason to determine if we want those instincts to continue or not. And so for some instincts, like the instinct to overeat sugar, because you never know, the body doesn't know that there's going to be sugar again tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that we say, okay, that's an instinct that comes from this old world that is no longer serving us. And so we need to maybe override that yeah. instinct. But we have these um, moral instincts of fairness and justice and wanting to reduce suffering and taking care of those who are near and dear to us and all of this. And we are essentially saying, okay, we recognize that these still may be just products of evolution, but rationally, we want to live in a world where we have those values. We want our children to grow up in a world where they experience those values. So we're going to keep that instinct. And so we're just determining which instincts are serving us and which ones we need to kind of override. And we should think about the idea that is our bad rules more likely to be criticized and changed when it within religion where there's an authoritative voice and then there are human beings who decide what to is is allowed to be criticized and what isn't because they're the authoritative voices in that yeah. religion that or, came out they came out in the discussion sorry finish that thought go ahead and or are bad ideas more likely to be shifted and changed and adapted if we allow science and wisdom without authoritative voices being concrete out in the invisible to then shift and change to us going like, Oh, that actually didn't work. Let's just do something different. Yeah. That exact statement or idea came up in a debate, which I, you would really enjoy if you haven't seen it between Jordan Peterson and Matt Dillahunty um, and Matt basically. So Jordan was asking, well, where do you start when you, when you're trying to create morality without God. And Matt essentially said, it doesn't matter where you start because it's going to be self-correcting. So you can start anywhere. You can start with let's be kind. And then, and then we find out actually when we all want to be kind, then people can become manipulative in a system where everyone's trying to be kind. So we're going to adjust, we're going to adjust this. And so it said, 
he essentially said the great thing about the secular world is it doesn't matter where you start because you can adjust, whereas religion, um, it, it's not self-adjusting. And so it really matters where you start because you're going to be stuck there forever. Yeah, and to build on that, um, we like to think that morality is concrete. Like if we really could discern what is best for us, we could lay out a rule and thousand years from now, we still still have the same rules. And religion doesn't really make room. As you said, it's not adaptable in the same way. Times change. There are moments in time where maybe extreme violence is the best course of action. Mm-hmm. And there are other times where extreme violence is the worst sin and atrocious thing in the world and if the rules are written in stone literally right moses off the mount then we don't have the ability to go like oh the human species is in jeopardy and we have to now break the rules to actually do something that actually ends up benefiting us right now so yeah we need the flexibility because it's all chaos and it's all shifting and changing all the time Mm. it's good stuff all right Next one is politics as your new religion. We've talked about this a couple of times on, on the podcast. And essentially he talks about atheism that really turns to politics. So people, especially on the left, who will get into Marxism, for example, um, and try to let's destroy capitalism and let's, let's build this and let's have this political movement. And your political movement is a new religion in the sense that it has its own idea of heaven. It has its own values. It has its own leaders at the gate determining whether or not you're worthy to be in the in group. Um, and it's even violent, right? So in America, um, we'll see this both on the left and the right, that politics isn't just um, what are your political values and, oh, these are my political values. They're essentially both religions now, especially as more and more people leave organized religion. Politics are essentially competing religions. This is this is a crusade. And so when we're talking about, you know, uh, January, the insurrection and January 6th, um, this this is a crusade against two sides where, where you really do have two different versions of reality, two different versions of heaven that are fighting each other. And so atheists will leave um, religion and they'll leave, they'll leave God, but they will definitely fall into politics being their new religion, especially religious movements of the left. You're muted. Sorry about that. So every society has to make legal boundaries. Like that's that's has to happen. So that's a given. And true democracy isn't real. We can't really every night you go to your computer and uh, all of the de- legal decisions are disseminated amongst all of us. And we all go on our computer every night and read the issues and vote like that's also not feasible in a big modern society. Maybe in a tribe of 12, hey, let's all sit around the fire and make a decision. Majority wins, right? So you have to have legal people leading at the front. Now, we built all the systems of the world. We built them the way we did. Let me ask, could we have built a system that whatever the mechanisms were in it that would have promoted to the top, the decision makers would have been the wisest, most emotionally mature people in our society. Could we have built that? And I think we could. 
We could come mm-hmm. up with, instead of doing elections the way we do, we could come up with elections or appointments in a very different way. And I don't think you can avoid the political idea entirely, but I would like to suggest that we could create a world where the voices who lead us are agreed upon collectively in our tribe as the wisest and most emotionally mature people. And you and I both intuitively understand that's not what it is. That's not what it is now. The so, bigger you get, I feel like the harder that is, right? What? Why did no one build us? And by the way, go back far enough in time. Who led the small tribe? It would have been the strongest, right? Violence yeah, always but like, rules. I, I saw this study that showed that, um, that, for example, they were studying deer and the men who studied deer said, oh, there's like one main deer that's a male and he um is the one that says okay we're gonna go over here now and so the males didn't see anything more than just like oh there's like a top male and then these are the females and the children and when the females started studying the deer they noticed that like the the top male deer will wait until the majority of the female deer are looking in a certain direction like i want to go this way and so when you get like 10 of them point like looking that way then the top male deer will be like, okay, and now we're going. And so it may be, and so it's, yeah. So having a top person may be necessary, but there are ways even in nature where it's more collaborative than how it appears. Yeah. And so we could build the system anyway. And I would, I don't really see politics as religion, hence sort of a form of atheism, but I would suggest that we could build a really cool political system that doesn't rely on Matt. In other words, the issue of abortion, pro-life, pro-choice. When you discard God and the invis- the reasons you have based on an invisible God and what you think he thinks, I'll just say it. Pro-choice uh, from just a logical, rational standpoint has a ton more evidence for it health of the mother. Like we're not just considering the baby's life. We're also considering the mother's health and societal ramifications. And, you know, it's when we put God into the picture and we say like, Hey, we just know he cares this way. So we're going to come up with our justification for why we know he's this, that, that isn't productive to coming up with the healthiest decision for what works. And, And I'm simply saying we could design a society where the Instead of the strongest or instead of the most manipulative or instead of the most charismatic people that the leaders of our system were the wisest with multiple perspectives and the ability to hold space for feelings while not making decisions solely based on emotion. I feel like in order to do that, you would have to have a society that had unculted itself, right? That had recognized that we have these instincts towards charisma that we have an instinct that when someone talks confidently, we believe that we're competent. This is why women will get involved with narcissists because the, the, the confidence is an identity marker is a marker for competence. 
that may or may not be there, right? And so you would have to essentially have a society that would uncult itself or else it would it would inevitably turn into the most charismatic because yeah. until you get the people to be able to to recognize that and it would just be an outgrowth of human nature, which we are very susceptible to, um, to many, to manipulation and cults and cult leaders. So I think his sense of it being a new religion is that it has its own idea of heaven that we're all working towards and that we're the good guys over here and we're the in group. And this is the language and these are the leaders and these are the prophets and these are the bad guys. And we must do this at all costs that starts acting like a crusading religion. Yeah. If not and, heaven, certainly building Zion, right? Like, yeah, That's utopia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, utopia. Um, I would only add to that. I would. I kind of fantasize sometimes uh, when I'm laying in bed at night and uh, got the the cold side of the pillow underneath my head. I sometimes think about what would the world look like if the last, let's say, America over the last 200 years, if the politicians were made up of Brene Browns and Sam Harris's and Jordan Petersons and Eckhart Tolle's. And, uh, you know, name, name the folks that you trust to be healthier than the politicians that we have. And what would have happened if we had 200 years of really good, emotionally stable, healthy individuals making decisions about what would make the best society? And I'd, I would, I'd love to see what that would look like. I don't know, man. <laughs> That's a bizarre world. <laughs> yeah. It's unfathomable. Right. Yeah. All right, the next one. So the first four, I was like, okay, like Bill and I have talked about these things. We've talked about transhumanism. We did a whole podcast on. We've talked about politics. We've talked about these things. And I feel like I've recognized the ways that, um, you know, the left operates like a religion, even a cult sometimes. And I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm on track with this. And then this one is the one like, oh, for sure, I'm, I still have thoughts in this space. Okay, so the next one is God haters. And these are atheists who are so obsessed with evil that they actually still have some sort of subconscious belief in God. And I've actually thought about this. I, I came to this conclusion um, on my own before I read this. So it's interesting to read language on this. And so he talks about how the existence of evil in the world is a mystery. Christians have come up with fancy arguments for evil about free will for mankind and so on. But the God hater is one who can't accept God because of all the evil in the world and then comes to hate that God. But it's just another iteration of monotheistic thought because, and now speaking personally, there was a time where I was really kind of mad at nature and the universe and the way things are and the reason i was upset at just the nature of suffering that is inherent in all conscious creatures is because when i was in religion i imagined it being better right and so if if you're mad at god or mad at the way things are or mad at the amount of suffering there is in the world it's because you probably imagined that things were better when you were told that God was good. And so when you leave that, you know, you're, you're told that God is good. And then you see all the, the evil and suffering in the world. You think this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. And if you have the thought, it shouldn't be this way. It's because subconsciously you think if there was a God, it should have, or it should have been different. It should have been different than this. 
But if you actually grew up without any monotheism, maybe you wouldn't hate the nature of reality for being so much suffering because there would be no idea that says that things should be different than what they are. And I definitely recognize that in myself, that there were some times that I was really upset at the nature of evil and suffering, but it was only because I was really coming from religion, which um, gave me a sense that there was an eternal sense, sense of justice or gave me a sense that there was meaning in the suffering or gave me a sense that things will be better on the other side. And when you lose all that, then you have to face evil and suffering, but you once lived in a world that imagined that things were different. And so you'll be forever mad that things aren't different because you were raised on the idea of God. Yeah, the universe is both creating itself and eating itself at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just is. And it's only our conscious story that's applying all that narrative to it. So, you know, the tiger, the leopard jumps out of the, the, the weeds and uh, tackles the bison and bites its neck. And certainly there's pain, like there's feeling of something that doesn't feel good, but we recognize in the animal kingdom that that just, that's the circle that of life. Is. Yeah. And, you know, we look at like animals can feel pain. So we kind of sense like, Ooh, that's horrible that it happens, but it has to happen. And with humans, we kind of go, because it's our species, it's part of why the universe differentiates is so that we can nourish ourselves, but not on ourselves, right? Because the closer something is to us, mm -hmm. the more bothersome it is that things are eating each other, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at even like plants, uh, in a forest of trees, the baby tree comes up. And if it's open enough at the top, he gets enough sunlight that he lives. And if the other trees are like, without any conscious thinking, they're like, nope, this is the space we occupy. Then he doesn't get enough sun and he dies. And if he could feel things, it would hurt. But it's just yeah. the universe doing its thing. Even Neil deGrasse Tyson on Earth Day was like, you know, some people on Earth Day talk about how the Earth is just so bounteous and we should just be taking care of it. And he was like, by the way, if nature could kill us, it would. It is trying to kill us all of the time. The viruses in your body are trying to kill you right now. The trees, if they could take over your house, they are trying to. They want to. The mice and the moles and the, you know. And so this idea that, that the Earth is just this bounteous, happy place is somehow denying what life is, is that it is to, to survive is to kill something, you know, and you can decide to be vegan if you want and decide to just kill plants and all of the thing, all of the animals that are associated with growing those plants, but you can't ever totally escape that life is death and life is suffering. Amen. But his thing is that if you if you can't accept that, it's probably because you're still operating under the shadow of of, of a God and that life should have been different. Amen. Which is interesting. Right. All right. So those first five are what he calls um, shallow forms of atheism and not true atheism because they're still operating under monotheistic patterns. So here are the two forms of atheism that he considers true atheism. The first one is atheism without any faith in progress. So 
He says that this is the most vigorous kind of atheism. They reject the idea that the cosmos is rational or getting better and that it's a deep acceptance that life is suffering. There's no reason for it. And any hope that life itself could be different is nothing more than a religious fantasy, which is pretty harsh. Like it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Say that sentence again. Uh, it is the deep acceptance that life is suffering and that there's no real reason for it. And any hope that life itself could be different is really just a religious fantasy. Mm. And I can't argue with it. Yeah. It, the, for, for six, whatever it is, 13.8 billion years, the creative energy of the universe has had to bump up against obstacles and challenges and life itself is constant in constant threat we we humans somehow we did this thing where we got ourselves completely off the food chain like we exempted ourselves because we were smart enough to figure out how and and we no longer live in this threat of survival on it every day even though it's sort of still there but you just don't see it and then we did two other things, which is we occupied every geographic location, which no species on the planet has done except for us. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe like bacteria and things like that, but like the life we see, everything has its place and it needs a certain climate, needs a certain diet. The other thing we do is we eat anything that can be eaten, humans eat. Mm. And that also was never intended to be. And so we almost turned ourselves from a species on the planet into a virus on the planet. Um, and to get back at what you started with, which is all of this is violent, pain, suffering, hurt. The moment you're born, yes, you're going to grow and develop, but you're already on your way to death. I mean, and then there comes a point where you and I are no longer getting taller. We're no longer um, something, something hit a point and now we're going a different direction. And you can sense, I'm 44 years old, I can sense that I'm on that back half of life. I, I, I'm not growing anymore. I'm dying now. Every day is death coming. And I think he sees a value in just deep acceptance without feeling like I have to do something about this to distract myself. Just like a deep level of, of acceptance of what is. And so he values... Um, and I haven't heard him talk about this a lot. I'd love to dig into it more, but he values Taoism and other forms of Eastern religion because they teach you how to just accept what is and accept suffering at a deep level and on an individual level, because he has no faith that overcoming suffering is going to be done at the group level. This is all going to be done kind of on the individual level that we just need to make peace with what is. And then his last form of atheism is mystical atheism. And this one reminded of you. And, and it said, um, it sounds almost like people who have a big drug experience and talk about the oneness of everything. It's a radical kind of atheism that asserts that the nature of reality is ineffable. It can't be embodied in words. Some types of mystical religion come close to atheism and their understanding of God is unimaginable. And just a deep acceptance that reality is fundamentally mysterious. And eventually true atheism ends with silence. When no more words or arguments can be said, no missionary program to adopt, no new heaven to fight for, no God replacement. And so he ends in this place of true atheism being kind of a deep acceptance, a silence, 
a place where we write poetry and we talk to each other as much as we can about how mysterious reality is and then we die and that that is a brave life and that is actually being a true atheist and that all these other forms that are trying to do whatever they're trying to do whatever their goal is um are just people still being religious yeah i you, as you hinted at before we went live and, and also you said here i'm absolutely drawn to what you just said i i don't know that i would I wouldn't change a thing about the sentence or paragraph you just read. Like um, I am ultimately aware that the rational thinking leads that there is no Supreme creator in the universe. Who's pulling strings anywhere on any level. Uh, when Jenny finds her keys, it wasn't because she said a prayer. And when someone was kidnapped and abused, uh, it wasn't because God was ignoring some injustice. It, things that are just are, but there is there is something to whatever happened 13.8 billion years ago it expanded and evolved into us and the bears and the crickets and the owls and the rocks and the streams and hence not god but it is all knowing all powerful and all present and I think if we if we understand it really deeply, we grasp that God was a further permutation of trying to explain it, but maybe what they were trying to explain was just the connectedness in the mystery in the universe that was already apparent. I guess I'll stop there because I think that <laughs> leaves it on the edge. Yeah, so this comment, why does he dismiss atheism that has similar patterns to monotheism but favors atheism that has more similarities to Eastern religion? And that's a good point. And like he has said that, you know, even with Christian mysticism, that they'll get right there. They're, they're, they're right there with um, mystical atheism. But there's something about the Eastern religions, because we're talking about atheism, which is a theistic god, the Eastern religions are going to have a leg up in doing their kind of form of mysticism because it's not from the get-go, it's not going to be centered around God. Whereas Christian mysticism, it's going to be um, still trying to get to God. It's still, it's still going to be centered around atheistic God, which is what theism is, right? And so I think that's the difference is that is that Eastern mysticism was already playing in a space where there wasn't God. And so if you want to be a true atheist mystic, you may find more in Eastern mystics who see time as circular rather than, um, rather than all the ways that monotheism kind of affects our brains and we're trying to replace God. Isn't it interesting at the same time, take Christianity, for example, at the same time, Christianity goes, you know, you need to know God, the one and only true God. It also, in those same books, tells you that God is unknowable and un unapproachable. And it seems as though if you can parse out the two narratives that are going on, one of those narratives is that you sense something, but it's completely undefinable, unknowable, unapproachable. And the best we can do is just be in awe of it as something that can't be approached or defined. Yeah. And this is why mystics, to his point, this is why, uh, to Aaron's point here, 
This is why mystics of any religion speak a common language and mystics coming from different religions will be more alike than Christians gathering at an, at, you know, a, a Baptist, Lutherans, Mormons, if you think they're Christian, whatever, getting together and, and talking about what it means to be Christian. So there is something about mysticism, especially that says there's something here that's fundamentally mysterious and all we can really do is kind of experience it for what it is and accept both awe and suffering as what it means to be alive. And then we die. <laughs> and like, that's kind of it. And if you're trying to do more than that, and if you want to do, adopt myths, that's fine. If you want to go play in mythical playgrounds or you want to play in society, just know that you're adopting myths and just like do that consciously. And so he's bothered that some atheists aren't recognizing that they're still just, they're still playing with myths. Yeah. The, it goes back to Buddhism. Like our attachment our fear of death and our attachment to needing to have things spelled out and organized. And, you know, there's gotta be some greater meaning that the universe is telling us is there and you have to sort of let go of all of that. It's, it's not real. Mm. All right. So we will, we're an hour in, so let's get to our next kind of grouping, which is seven new religions. And this comes from the book, strange rites. Uh, written by Tara Burton, and it's this idea of people are leaving religion, but then where are people going? And so how she defines religion, I'd be curious what you think about this definition, is um, religions do four things. One, giving meaning to what is confusing. Number two, giving you a purpose in according to that meaning and story. Number three, a community of persons to co-labor in that purpose. And number four, a set of rituals which solidifies your personal and community identity. She calls that a religion. I, I, I have to wrestle with this a little bit because I'm, I'm sort of trained to think there has to be some unknown force for it to be religion. And as we'll see in some of these lists, that has nothing to do with it. I do agree with what you just named. All of those seem to be a facet of religion. It seems like I'm just struggling that I feel like something else has to be added. And obviously these lists want to avoid that. And there isn't, it's just arbitrary whether we do or not, but right. religion seems to include some supernatural thing. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be according to this. Yeah, I think I think we're starting to recognize that we have human needs and we create religions, but there's this there's this conversation of is religion only when you break into the supernatural or if religion has all these other other elements, right? It's giving you a story which at rock bottom is still going to be a myth at some point. The story of America is still going to be a myth even if you don't tell the supernatural side of mm. America coming into being like just the idea of itself is somewhat I, I wouldn't say supernatural but it is but it is a myth right and so if you kind of break open the definition to include supernatural as any kind of myth then it breaks open the definition of religion mm. she may still you know she may still say organized religion looks like this you know it has maybe a church it's more likely to deal with the supernatural but if we're just talking about religion it's going to start with a story that just gives order to chaos and your purpose is in the story and you have a community with people who 
agree with this story, and then you have rituals that solidify your identity. And that is at least acting like a religion in your brain, whether or not you like that definition of religion. It can be acting like a religion. And so her book is talking about how um, organized religion is dying in America. And so let's see how people are fulfilling these basic human needs, because you still need some way of orienting yourself in the universe. And so she has seven um, things that she recognizes as where people are going when they are leaving religion that are acting like religions. And so the first one is fan fiction. You already mentioned one, which is Jediism, which actually is a fan fiction that became a religion in 2015. It actually, um, it actually petitioned for a status to be recognized as a religion. Um, Anyway, but like Marvel, Harry Potter, fan fictions, there are millions of people who identify themselves as a Gryffindor or a Ravenclaw, and more Americans know the four houses of Harry Potter than know the four books, the four main books of the New Testament. And so the sense of being in a story and getting from that story good and evil and lessons and heroes and bad guys um, we're not really doing that with the Bible anymore. We're doing that with fan fiction and fandoms and people will travel and they will dress according to their favorite character and they'll go to Comic-Con and it's, it's, it's acting almost like a religion in, in the sense that we are a part of this story. People will go so far as to learn a fictional language. I'm thinking right. Klingon here. Right. <laughs> the Trekkies, you know, there are certain Trekkies who will learn the Klingon language. And it's so strange that Star Trek as a fictional show created some sort of consistent, coherent fictional language. Yeah. But in but some sense, insanity. all language is fictional in some way, right? I mean, like... <laughs> Totally. But I see what you mean. Like it's not, you know, practiced by any particular people except by Trekkies. That's insane to me. So <laughs> the ability to place principles and values in fictional stories that we all agree aren't real, because that's really the difference is on the front end, we all agree this is never, this was never and is never going to be understood to be real or true. Yeah. We give up literal, still, literalness but, at the beginning. But people pay their money and they get super into the story and they identify with certain characters. They identify with certain Harry Potter houses. Mm. They, they'll, they'll be, everybody's will go online and write their kind of spin off Harry Potter story. And they become in some ways part of the story, even, even though we're a mat, even though we know mm. that it's not real. And in fact, there's a whole podcast called Harry Potter and the sacred text where people will actually gather and read Harry Potter as if it was the Bible. And we know that it's like written and it's not the Bible, but they'll read it and talk about, okay, what, what is a death eater? Why, why do humans tend to do this or whatever? And they'll have conversations, deep philosophical, moral conversations from the text of Harry Potter. And they'll use it as a sacred text, which I think is so interesting. And so when people say, you know, I don't really have a story, um, like a biblical story, but you really resonate with a certain character in a certain kind of fandom, then it may be in your brain acting like a story. This is how I get my sense of good and evil. I want to be the Jedi's. I don't want to be a Darth Vader. Like that may be subconsciously how you're getting morality, which, which is at least really interesting. I do think if we're ever going to create a world religion 
that is made for woke, almost awakened, second half of life, deconstructed people. I th- and by that I mean, you know, take all the tools that religion does and try to replicate that without a belief in something bigger. I think we're going to have to wrap it in something that we all agree on the front end isn't true. Yeah. Which, I mean, Harry Potter was a huge thing for my generation. Are any of your kids into, get super into Harry Potter? They might be mm-hmm. a little too old. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, with, with Generation Z, well, Generation Z wouldn't be a Harry Potter generation. They're more, they're more Marvel and other comic books and yeah. Spider-Man. But um, it can act like the story by which you orient yourself in the universe, even knowing, well, that story is not true. And it can also be the place where you create communities, online communities. You'll go and travel. I mean, Comic-Con in that sense is acting like a pilgrimage where like the people who are true mm. fans will go wow. and gather and they'll yeah. dress up and they'll do certain rituals together. And there's certain prophets that like everybody wants to see this person and um, it's acting like a pilgrimage. And so it's, yep. it's interesting to see that religious behavior in a world that we all know isn't real, but people are getting really real about it in their costumes and in the writing and in their life. It's absolutely tribalism. It, it's us and them at others, right? There's also this idea of embarrassment or shame and it like we all we all dress this weird way but we all acknowledge to ourselves that this is this is cool but we understand that those people out there think we're weird mm-hmm. um it does a lot of the tools that religion does yeah and as long as it's like not violent like the marvel people aren't fighting the harry potter people like i'm or the okay DC with folks. all of this yeah i'm okay with all of this this is all fine to me mm. um next one is wellness culture And so this is the cult of Gwyneth Paltrow. And this was really interesting to see that there's studies that show, especially if you're coming from Christianity or any form of kind of Puritan uh, religion where you have all of that mindset, the wellness culture is really built into that because what you're doing is um, instead of kind of cleansing your soul and doing repentance and sacraments in order to, to be clean, you're always detoxing your body. You're always trying to get your body to this kind of perfect state. And instead of there being like demons and Satan out there, it's like chemicals and toxins are out there, but you can control what's in your home. You can control your body and you can detox your body and keep it clean and be in the best physical shape. And if you're in the best physical shape, then you're going to have an amazing, fulfilling life. And it's really acting like a Puritan religion in the sense that you're always trying to stay clean. But instead of the clean being, you know, trying to always be repenting, it's like it's like all it's associated with food and you can have good food days and you can have bad food days. And if you have a bad food day, that means that you're bad and you need to detox your body and you've got chemicals in your body. It gets very it gets very religious in how it um, works. And it's this four trillion dollar market of all these products that they're not just promising health. They're promising a form of wellness. They're profit. They're, they're promising a form of like perfection of life. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I feel like this is when I was prepping for this show and reading through the list and trying to think some thoughts about each of these, this is the one that I actually fear could even be more dangerous than actual religion. Mm. In other words, when you start picking new gurus and new processes and there's money involved, which there is, there's billions of dollars at stake. You're leaning on someone to be truthful 
while also being able to make lots of money off of you. And those two almost never go together. And hence what you end up with is people who will stand behind products or processes that there may be a promise on the front end and a uh, distortion where actual harm is caused on the back end. Yeah, I think we see this. Um, you know, there's a huge thing in the the detox world and then the wellness world of of when people start saying like you can cure cancer with this, right? Because then, like you're saying, okay, now now we're not just playing with wellness. Now you're actually telling people that you can cure cancer, and then they actually die. Like that actually really happens in the in the wellness culture. Is people will say, I'm just going to drink celery juice, and then they die of whatever thing that they should have done because they don't want to take a toxin into their body, right? So yeah, I, I do think it causes real legitimate harm, especially and especially even just like the time, the time for spent for women to try to make your body perfect as if you're not gonna die. Like there's has to be something else you want to do with your life. Uh, because it just you're you're gonna die. It's you know, you can cleanse as much as you want. We're we're both gonna end up in the same place. <laughs> and to have again, and just to be a little funny, to have candles that are supposed to represent Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina yeah. already has me being skeptical on the front end anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. You already come out of religion with body issues. And then when Gwyneth Paltrow says you need to cleanse your vagina by putting a jade egg up your vagina, I feel sexually assaulted. Like I feel like I'm back into somebody assaulting my body. Yeah. I don't, I don't care gender. I don't really want. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it go. I don't want to make any more jokes because yeah, it's just, but distracting you're, you're right. There is, there is some danger in this world um, that can cause harm. All right. The next one is sexual utopianism, which Ooh. is the fulfillment of, yeah, don't get too excited. Fulfillment of body and soul as one and the same. So the argument isn't that sex and different sexual orientations is new. That's not the argument. The argument is that before, if you were gay or if you had this specific kink, you would be married, you would still be married, you'd have your wife and you would go to the brothel and you would pay someone to do whatever weird thing that you were into. And it was just kind of hush hush, right? And you certainly didn't have it be part of society. And so he says the new thing with sexual utopianism is if you feel like you are naturally polyamorous and that is something that is um, central to your se sense of sexuality, instead of doing that quietly while you're in a heterosexual marriage, you'll actually organize your community around I'm poly, I'm poly. This is my poly, this is my poly unit, right? And so never before have we had this kind of freedom in the modern world to say, I'm going to organize my community based on my sexual needs because my body and my soul are kind of the same. And so fulfilling all the needs of, of my body and connection with my body is what makes my soul kind of be one. And so I'm going to create the ideal sexual community for whatever I feel like my sexuality is. And so that, that is new organizing communities based on, um, even even whole kink communities or swinging communities that are really more open now than they've ever been before, that you're organizing communities according to your sexuality, which which is which is different. That is that is somewhat new. I have a little bit of 
experience rubbing shoulders in spaces where uh, non-monogamous groups are. And I can tell you as an observer that they tend to create parties that they as a group go to their friendships are based in these groups. And I think it's part of, because the rest of us have some sort of judgment or shame, or at least a perceived judgment or shame. Right. And so part of religion again, is that you sort of get ridiculed by everyone outside and you're, mm -hmm. you kind of just come closer together as a unit of people. And, um, there's a certain loyalty. There's a certain trust. There's a certain ability to be vulnerable. Uh, I can certainly understand how folks who aren't doing sexuality in the status quo will find themselves in spaces with other people of like mind, because those are the spaces that feel safe to them where they can be more of their authentic self. And, and they will essentially do life together. These groups mm -hmm. of folks and I, I absolutely agree that it has sort of the semblance of a religious group. Yeah, going back to our definition of religion, the, the story with this is that um, you want every human to be able to mac maximize their authenticity. Like that's the story, especially mm -hmm. sexual authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so then you're going to gather communities and you'll have your own language and rituals and um really, like you're saying, because of the shame element, they're going to be tight knit communities that operate under that story. And I have, I, I have mixed feelings about this one. I have mixed feelings about all of these. Like I see sometimes how this can be a really good thing. Like I can, I, I, again, being in the post-religious space like you, I rub shoulders with a lot of these communities and I'm curious about them. And I talk to therapists all the time about what's going on in these communities too. And um, on, on the one hand, I do love the idea of more freedom and autonomy and consent and authenticity. And then I do also have a worry that if your entire identity is based on your sexuality, is there something that you're missing that um, if your identity was based in, in something else? And then I also have concerns with with children, we're still trying to figure out, you know, there's this lie that says that children are best raised by heterosexual parents who fall in love and have this heat of the moment and they have sex and someone gets pregnant, but then those heat of the moment kind of relationships are really explosive when they blow apart. And that's really damaging to the kids. And so can you kind of raise children where consenting adults will agree to bring a child into that community? Or is that too far from human nature in the sense that unless you have that kind of biological link to that child, you're not going to be able to show up in the same way? And some of those questions, I don't think we have great answers to yet. We're still trying to figure out how you can restructure society so that people have freedom, but there's also the structure and order needed for children. And I, I think that's still a conversation. I don't think that there's like a clear stance on that. Yeah, my, my only two thoughts there, but not again, every in my mind, every way that someone would like to show up sexually, I think is valid outside of things that violate consent. Right. So, you know, animals, children, obviously are the two obvious ones, but, uh, sexual assault and all those kinds of things as well. But monogamy, again, valid expression of sexuality. Monogamy is, is also 
when when religion, for instance, imposes it as an absolute, like this is the way God wants you to live, let us all recognize that that's also a myth which was created so that we would better trust each other so that the tribe would col- would work together and collaborate and not be mad at each other. Mm-hmm. Like having non-monogamy cause, it requires a lot more emotional maturity. Mm-hmm. You have to really deal with feelings. You've- yeah, which is why therapists will say to people who want, like if you just left a church yesterday and you want to open your marriage, like any therapist will say like, you're not there yet. Like you're going to blow up your marriage unless you develop these communication things that you're talking about. Right. And um, I'll also say, and I shared this in the conversation with uh, with John here and with uh, with Margie, but um, just as we now on this side of life, we accept that there are asexual people and that that is a normal expression of sexuality, which is the non-existence of feelings of needing sexual intimacy and connection and expression. Might we also recognize that part of human expression would obviously be the other end of that spectrum as well, mm-hmm. which would be uh, massive Hyper- amounts of hypersexuality. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. just as normal as asexual. Mm-hmm. And hence, we ought to somehow figure out how to create safe environments for humans to be able to be that authentic version of themselves if we acknowledge that that's just as normal. And by normal, I don't mean the the majority of humans. I mean normal as in it's a statistically consistent expression of humanity. In other words, it's not abnormal. Like asexual people is normal. It's not the it's not the the norm for the majority of people. But 0.8 percent of humans or whatever it is show up co- consistently as asexual. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because six percent of people are left-handed, it's still normal to have left-handed people. Right. Right. No, it's, it's interesting. And it goes back to conversations that we were talking about before where, where evolution developed us in a certain way. And now we're having to say, well, well, what should we do about this? Is this something that, is there something there that we should be uh, in compromise with our sexual desires? Because there are other values that we also want to value. Is there other values of of safety in a nuclear family that you want to value that may be in compromise with your, your because even someone who's, who's monogamous and explicitly monogamous will have fantasies about other people. Right. And so maybe, and so it's, it's, it's interesting because sexuality is a value, but are there also other values? And I think this Sam Harris said something about this too, that he had no objection to people who live in these kinds of communities, but it would just mean that sexuality is a high value of yours because everything is kind of secondary to your value of sexuality. And for him, there were other values that were higher than his value of sexuality. And another facet is that if we create a society where we agree that the majority rule and this is the box everybody needs to live in, will inevitably happen is that people in that tension and the feelings of shame and judgment will act out their needed desires in unhealthy ways because there is no structure, education, or safe space for them to do that. Right. Right. And that's the interesting thing when we go back to, you know, Victorian times of, of trying to prop up heterosexual marriages as holy. And then everybody was in brothels and everybody was having sex with everybody else secretly. So it's like, okay. <laughs> and we all act like 
monogamy is this God-given thing and it's always been that way. And when you start understanding like marriage as sort of an exchange of property and yeah, it's just, it's, it's all nonsense. Anytime a religionist comes along and goes, no, 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 this is simple. God is a right. fan of one man and one woman and marriage has always been. Think, and yeah, go, go read sex at dawn by Christopher Ryan and Cecilda Jetha. And then come back to me and tell me monogamy was the one. True and I path. think that's a big question for evolutionists is, is before our modern concept of kind of, of God, um, what were we sexually just like as a species? And I think the term that they came up with was serial monogamers, which we are, we tend to pair up and then we tend to break away and go to the next pair. And that seems to be what humans naturally do that we're not, um, like some species, like once they, they create that partner, like that's it. They, that's their, their monogamers for, for life. And it seems like um, humans are not that way naturally. And so there's so much shame in like divorce and then repartening. And when really that may be as a species, what we do. Um, it reminds me that when we look at the rest of the primate family, gorillas do polygamy. Hmm. Bonobos have completely open relationships. Gibbons have complete monogamy. It's like every expression of sexuality shows up mm. as a as a certain form in each of the primate families. And then humans somehow go, we're going to do all of that. <laughs> yeah, because we nasty. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the next one is the social justice movement and this is just similar to what we talked about before that um, people will start to do kind of a pilgrimage with something like Black Lives Matter, that this is how I create my identity. These are my people. These are the people who are in. These are people who are out. This is the story. This is the narrative. And the story for the social justice movement is always to, you know, we're going to decentralize power and then we're going to support each other and become a community that that systematically tries to decentralize power. And there are people that are more powerful in that community and less powerful in that community. If you're a white heterosexual man, you're gonna be not as powerful in a community that is talking about really decentralizing power and you know, fuck the patriarchy. And so it has its own kind of religiousness to it. And certainly for Gen Z, we found that um, Black Lives Matter was not just a social movement. It was spiritual for them. It was, this is how I'm going to be part of something that's bigger than me, which is a lot of what religion does, is it gives us a story to be a part of and a people to be a part of and a goal to, to work for and language and um, rituals and things like that, that give us a sense of, of who we are and gives us an identity. And so that is definitely acting like a religion at times. All right. Thoughts on that one? Um, what was the name of it again? Social, just social justice. Movements. Yeah. So my, my fear is that no modern society has been able to, and I would even include ancient ones like big ancient, like Rome, for instance, no modern society has been able to create a healthy functioning, uh, society where that that transcends time where we valued collective individual well-being over tribal perpetuation and my fear is that the justice warrior 
sort of like, this is the right way for us all to live is to make sure that every human has equal privilege and every human has equal safety and every human has equal opportunity to be their best self and content and not to be harmed. Maybe you can't get there. Yeah. And while I think I have no choice, but to be a justice warrior and to nudge us that direction and give it a trial run, it actually could be the thing that disintegrates the human race itself. Or even stops the progression of science because, because in species, even in ants, you know, there's this example that I think it's like 50% of ants are walking around pretending to work. And um, there's only a few that are really working and some that who are kind of working. And so the perpetual, like you have to, this is a Jordan Peterson argument, so it's controversial because it's Jordan Peterson, but but that if if the 1% of humanity is the thing that's driving science, which allows um, everybody to benefit from, it raises the cost of living for everybody, then to kind of pull down that 1% is actually too detriment to everyone because as, species, as a species, it's your 1% that's going to propel things forward. It's not going to be your average Joe. Like, if 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 i'm in, if i'm equally in charge of of decisions of around science as anyone else then we're not going to get anywhere because i'm not great at that like it's not my thing so there's an argument to be made there too in most progress most advancements most inventions are trying to solve a problem where we're experiencing discomfort annoyance fear um lack of health to the degree we want it, that we're trying to solve a problem. And hence, if you remove the problem, make everyone fair and balanced, and you, you, like you're saying, you may cause things to not be present that are deeply important to uh, continued development of a society. Yeah. It's almost like we recognize there's problems with social justice movement, but till, uh, but until we kind of get to the other side where where we're experiencing the problems of um, equality or forced equality. It's almost like we need to let it play out a little bit longer to balance the scales, which is something I think you've said before. Yeah. All right. The next one is a return to the primal. So this would be like, this is specifically uh, a male movement, but there are females. There's a, there's a hashtag called traditional wife, trad wife that, that females will do. And it's essentially, this is all a mess. Modernity is a mess. Let's go back to what we were as primal creatures. So the men need to be strong. You need to work out at the gym. You need to provide for your family. The women need to be more traditional and we're going to return to kind of what we were anciently. And you can see this on the left and the right. You know, you can see on the left and the, the right, the rejection of, you know, public schools and creating children to be just pacified parts of some system. And we need to go back to being, um, you know, these really strong, muscular head of the household men and these more traditional women and raise children and natural selection. And it's, it's a return to, to our primal nature. And it's a rejection of of kind of the modern world. And so there's a fantasy here that, that if I could return my family into what we used to be, then we're going to avoid all these problems that are happening in the modern world. Um, when really it's, you know, it's just kind of a different set of problems. You're muted. Yeah. yeah I, I totally agree with you. 
I don't have much to say other than you're right. I think the key component is if we go back to the way things were, like there's some of us that go like, wouldn't it be nice if we could go back to a hunter-gatherer society where I have to work a little bit, but then I've got so much more expendable time to spend with the people I love around a fire, singing and dancing and cuddling each other. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that really likes that. And what happens if the healthcare system goes back to the hunter-gatherer society? What yeah. happened? You know, so when nomads, you and I both have bad knees. So on that walk as nomads, we would like people don't understand in hunter gatherer societies. Like if you couldn't keep up and you are risking the tribe, they'll just club you in the back of the head like it's nothing. And yeah. so like you and me have bad knees. We wouldn't have made it. We're out. I got COPD. <laughs> I need my CPAP machine. <laughs> yeah, you're, you, you're not going to make it. <laughs> somebody wanted me to go to one of these shortened uh, like Burning Man. Uh, oh yeah. Here in Utah, uh, a friend said, Hey, why don't you come do this? And I said, that sounds like a ball of fun. I definitely want to, I have an attraction to that. Yeah. And where am I plugging my CPAP machine <laughs> in, you know? Yeah. So yeah. But that's what they would say. They would say natural selection has selected you out, Bill Real. So sorry. Yep. Yep. And so there it's, it's, it's this, um, anger at the way things are and there's especially kind of this undercurrent of anger with men who um, are sexually rejected by women and then they just want to return to this state where men kind of more it seems like men had more of the power and that they were there were these strong men that led uh, communities and that women need to get on board with this because this is the way that we were and this is what we should, should be and when really the undercurrent of that is that women aren't picking you to have sex with and you're sad about that and, and you're again, mad about that. <laughs> one set of problems being traded for another. Right. All right. So the next one is um, the utopian face of Silicon Valley, which is transhumanism and faith in science. Again, we explored this at length in our last episode, um, but this is acting like a new religion, especially in uh, Silicon Valley and tech spaces where everything that we wanted to do with religion, let's try to do it with science and tech, which we talked about the problems of that too. And what are the rituals there? Like I'm mm. trying to. That's a good question. It seems like, like the singularity is like the. Second Wouldn't the ritual the be like all the, all the anti-aging, like, like you're wearing the watch that shows you how you sleep. And you're do you're taking the supplements and you are on top mm. of the science. There's like a there's like an anti-aging and Lincoln gets a part of this too. He's he's in phenomenal shape. Um, but there's like there's like this trying to be always at the cusp of technology and then your identity signaling to others that you are combating aging and combating and using tech to make every part of your home a smart po- phone or a smart home, every part of your life you know, technology driven. And so I think there's some ritual in that, some at least identity markers in that. This is the day we take your consciousness out of your head and place it in the cyborg. Yes. Yes. That's, that's the goal. And then the last one is magic and the occult. And we did um, a whole episode on what you and I think about various aspects of the occult, but essentially this is um, the rise of intuition and divine feminine and tarot and horoscopes. And again, it's a story through using horoscopes. Literally it's a story that the planets are affecting everything and affect who you are and what's going to happen. 
um, and you are ordering your life around essentially some kind of pseudoscientific explanation of the world and how you fit into it. And then there's just a ton of rituals that go with how you are ordering your life according to that story. This one seems the closest. And I think actually in some ways really is just another religion. And the only difference for me, and I, I think this is so much healthier anyway, again, not that it's true. We, we accept that so, much of this arena is bullshit. Um, but I, but I want to acknowledge it's healthier because it really does allow people to make individual choices about how far they take it or how far they don't without some outer authority condemning them for not taking it to whatever degree is the expectation. Yeah. I do think there's a danger in becoming so intuitive where you're only listening to yourself and your feelings that you can just get off into the weeds of pseudoscience and your own feelings. And that can lead you wherever, but it's not particularly violent because you're not gathering in order to, um, well, it, it's, yeah, it, it's not violent in its gathering. And so it's, it's crux is that you're going to become so interested in every little thing that you're feeling and trying to find patterns that you essentially just go crazy with energy and frequency. And you're just, you're just really, you know, you're just really off in the weeds, but I don't see it as particularly dangerous when we're talking about comparing religions. Um, again, because you're missing that hierarchical dogmatic gathering that can lead to large scale violence. Totally agree. So the kind of the big idea here that I was talking that we're kind of talking about is that um, most people in this audience have deconstructed God and religion to some extent, but it can be a useful exercise to look into what still lies in the shadows, what thinking patterns are still there from religion. And someone asked me once, why do you want to keep deconstructing? Like why? Like you left Mormonism over a decade ago. Why are you still deconstructing? And I thought about that. And my answer is that um, there is when you get into your thinking patterns and kind of the shadow of what God and religion left behind and you can start changing your thinking patterns, you actually have more freedom. And when you have more freedom, you can have more intentionality, which means you can have more options to create the kind of life that you want to wake up to a kind of life that you think is fundamentally worth living. And you're going to need that if you don't have a grand narrative and you don't have religion and you don't have God giving you a sense of meaning, you're going to need um, a life that is fundamentally worth living and you're going to have more freedom to create that life. If you're still deconstructing the thinking patterns that come to you from religion and God. Mm, I think that's beautiful. Um, I don't really have anything to add to that other than to just say like, amen and amen. It's all myth and you need something to make meaning of the world. Again, nihilism, absurdism, and you ought to always be introspective and, and looking at the outside world and constantly have, my wife has this phrase in work called trust, but verify. Mm. Everything you're told you ought to, you can trust, but verify. Yeah. And um, you ought to feel safe to constantly investigate your beliefs. Cause as you point out, it's the only way to adjust and reach progress. Mm. 
Yeah, to, to reach a kind of life that is, is worth living, which you're going to need on the other side of, uh, of religion because there is things that religion and God does that help to make you feel more secure. So if you're losing that security blanket, you're going to need some freedom to, to create a life that, that is worth living. So anyway, so I'm con continually deconstructing as I go. I'm still deconstructing things. I'm still deconstructing patriarchy in my brain. Um, and all kinds of things, but the purpose of it is to increase your level of freedom and intentionality. And so I think it's a good goal. And like you said, we all have myths, but there's a difference between having to believe in a myth and shutting out the world and having your blinders to keep your myth true and choosing to what myths you want to play with. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference in the amount of freedom that that provides your life when you um, are kind of blinded to your own myth or whether you're saying I'm choosing to play in this game because I want to, because it meets some value or, or need or experience that I want to have as a human. And that's, that's a shift of freedom that I really enjoy on this half of life. That's gorgeous. I love it. Beautiful right. episode, Brett Hartley. Good stuff, man. And uh, for the people who are on their way to see you tonight, good luck tonight. And I'm sure it's, it's going to be a blast and um, I, uh, I can't wait to hear all about it. Enjoy playing with your myths this summer. And I can't <laughs> wait to see you uh, back in a few months. And you'll have new ideas and new thoughts to share with this audience. And I'm excited I will. to see those. I will. I'm going to read some new books and get, get loaded with some new guests and materials so that um, we can hit the ground running with some mm. new content. Love it, folks. Awesome. Thank you, Britt Hartley, for uh, putting that together. Great conversation. Right. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you guys. And thanks for the people who stayed with us live. Okay. Take it easy, everybody. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no nonsense spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.